as we continue to consider the hope that is found in Christ, the hope that is in Christmas, we turn this morning to one of the bleakest chapters in all of the Bible. Uh, stick with me. There's a method, I hope, to this madness. We've got to go a little bit uh, dark today and then uh, hopefully come out of it by the end of the sermon and uh, into next Sunday as well. But today we go into Lamentations. And in case you're not familiar with it, Lamentations was written by the prophet Jeremiah. And he watched and he wept as he saw the utter destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. It was the judgment of the Lord, and it resulted in a horrific time of destruction of the city, but of suffering uh, for the people of God. It was ugly, and it was awful. And the book takes a patient, deliberate form of an acrostic in order to work us through the depth of this anguish and the depth of the suffering. The particular chapter that we are looking at today is organized by triplets, and you'll see that if you're looking at your bulletin and the way the text is presented there, or if you're looking at your Bibles as well, so that the first three verses start with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and that continues then uh, throughout the rest of this chapter, and they're kind of thematically oriented. And so, so as we hear this today, it's, it's kind of hard for us because we're looking at a very nice uh, setting in front of us, beautiful flowers and trees and things like that. Jeremiah was looking at the opposite of that. He was recollecting bodies in the streets and rubble and chaos and people carried off. And so we need to enter into that. We, we need to allow the Spirit of God through Jeremiah to take us to the bleak place of hopelessness, that he might show us there the pain, show us the pain of a life without God, show us the pain of a life under the judgment of God, and then, and then strongly lead us out of it. So, so we're being taken there by the word of God so that we can see it, realize that it's there, recognize the reality of it, and then be pulled back away from it. I'm going to read this chapter today with a little bit of emphasis to try and capture what this time would have been like for Jeremiah as he observed it. The Word of God. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh, my skin, waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead long ago. He's walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. 
He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. A struggle for hope. Great God in heaven, we bow before you with the prophet Jeremiah. We allow the weight that he felt of your judgment upon the people of Israel and even upon him, we allow that to come upon us as well, that with him we might see you. We pray that you would help us today. Help us to lay our souls upon your word and to find in them truth, find in it truth and healing and balm for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we saw what hope is. Remember, hope is the assurance or the conviction that God will keep his promises, that he will glorify his name in all the earth, and that we will share in that glory. And we saw that hope is essential, that hope is for people, and for the people of God in particular, it's life-giving. Hope is animating to have it. We saw that hope is a gift that God gives. He describes himself in his word as the God of hope. And today, I want to ask a simple question in light of those things that we considered last week. Here's the question. If hope is such a good thing, and if, in fact, God wants us to abound in hope, 
That's Romans 15, 13. It's the benediction that I'll close each one of these sermons with, or services with, and we did last week as well. If God wants us to abound in hope, and hope is a good thing, then, here's the question, why is it so hard? Why is it such a struggle? Frustration and discouragement and despair and depression and being downcast or being melancholy, they seem to be in life a whole lot easier than hope. Why? Why is that the case? If God gives it and wants us to abound in it, why is it easier to plod along the road of life essentially hopeless, kind of like those two disciples who are walking along the road to Emmaus without hope, with sad hearts, with a, with a downcast expression. And that's one way we could look at a life without hope, but there's another way, and perhaps an even more subtle and more dangerous way to look at a life without hope, and that is people who walk along or bounce along the road of life with kind of a smile pasted on their face, but the reality is their hope is in all of the wrong things. It's in all kinds of temporal things of this world and not of things like substance, as if they are trying to live life and find hope without the existence of the book of Ecclesiastes that has gone through all of that and said, no, 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 no. There's not hope in this thing in which you think there might actually be hope. Biblical hope is hard. We underestimate the enemies of hope at our peril. Today, I don't want to underestimate them. I want to look at them. I want to see them squarely from Scripture. What are these enemies of hope that make it so hard? Now, next week, we'll look at the exercise of hope. So, so these, kind of, these kind of go together. But right now, we look at the enemies of it and what makes hope a struggle. First of all, first of all this, we should remember that the old perennial enemies of the saints of God combine their forces in an axis of evil against hope. Their aim, the aim of these enemies, is to kill hope and to render the people of God hopeless. Because if they can make you hopeless, they've got you. The life, the energy, the zeal will be sucked out of you. And maybe the faith, if you can be hopeless. Now, to be sure, these enemies hate things besides hope. They hate faith, and these enemies hate love. They hate holiness, but amongst the things that they hate, they hate hope as well, and they seek to kill it. Paul identifies these classic enemies for us in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. I'll read that for you. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then he describes the enemies. Following, first, the course of this world. Following, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in, and this is number three, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, 
and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Those are the enemies. Commonly, we refer to them as the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the classic enemies that ally themselves against the people of God. They had us, they had us, those enemies, as Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. They had us in their grip, in their grasp. They had us in death. In Christ, in Christ, they no longer own us. We are not theirs anymore. We are in the grip of the grace of Jesus Christ. He holds us tightly. They no longer own us. But those enemies, those same old enemies, will do whatever they can from their position of defeat to destroy your hope, to chip away at the hope that is yours in Christ and in the promises of God. The world will scoff and mock at solid, eternal, Christ-centered hope. The world will tell you that if you're hoping in heaven, some heaven that Jesus has gone to prepare for you, that's a fiction. It's a story. It's a story that you've made up in order to feel better about your otherwise meaningless life, uninfluential life on earth. You don't believe in something that is real. The world will say, listen, live for today, hope for today, for ourselves, do what you find pleasing to do, put your hope in that, instead of deferring what you're hoping for to some vain pie in the sky thing that's off in the future somewhere that nobody's ever seen and that you can't prove exists to me. So the world, therefore, will sell us a different hope. They'll sell us a counterfeit. They'll say to us, listen, here's what you can actually hope in, something that's solid, something you can sink your teeth into. See, there's a house. There's a family. There's a career path for you. There's a, a nice way to make money. There's a solid investment plan for you. There's a solid retirement plan for you. And the world will offer those up to say to us, listen, have hope in those. Those are the things that are real. Those are the things that go to it, see it, feel it, touch it. You can see that those things are real. And, and, and the world will say to us, those things are the chief end of man. That's, that's your hope. Those things right there. Those are the chief end of man, the flesh, with its passions and desires, will lead us into present delight, saying, go ahead, indulge the body, the mind now. The flesh will send our minds along thought patterns that at first look good and then end up being destructive and full of hateful thoughts the flesh will sweetly and smoothly, smoothly and soothingly lead us in a way that looks like it's the way to something that will be pleasurable, and in the end, it is the way that leads to death. 
and it's a dark place of the soul. And when we get down to that, when the flesh has let us down to that present hope and a present thing, that it says, this is going to make you feel better in mind or body, and you fall for it, then it will pounce. Your flesh will pounce on you. And it will say to you, I told you so. I told you so. I know you. You know you. There can't be any hope for you. You are a hopeless case. You are a lost cause. There is no way you will grow. There's no way you will change. Don't deny it. Give it up. I've got you again. The devil will come and jump on that pig pile. And he'll say, I told you so as well. My words are confirmed by the world and by the flesh. You are a miserable sinner, and the reality is your sin still owns you. It still has got you in its grip. You are not free from those things. God is disappointed in you. He might be happy with other people who see the, the grace and the goodness of Jesus and who make progress in holiness and who walk in the way of the Lord, but with you, with you, and your endless disobedience, you are clearly guilty and there's no defense and he will not forgive someone like you. You clearly don't deserve it. He will not deliver you from the power of the flesh's grip on you because here you are once again, the devil will say to you, fighting against me, that's hopeless. Fighting against your flesh, that's self-destructive. That's the way you've been made. You shouldn't fight against your flesh. Fighting against the course of this world is a hopeless battle. You have no hope of victory. You have no hope. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they will eat away at your hope. They will do all that they can to destroy the hope that belongs to you. Second, the second thing that makes hope a struggle are the trying, difficult circumstances of our lives. This is a sad world. And it is a world that is full of pain and death. Uh, some of the guys were together yesterday for the men's book study reading Jonathan Edwards. And in the chapter we read was this sentence from Edwards. We dwell in a fallen, corrupt, miserable, wicked world. A world that is very much under the reign and the dominion of sin. End quote. Misery is the consequence of that sin. And as we look at our lives and as we look at this world, sometimes we see the sin and the misery that it has caused, and we see the judgment of God and the heavy hand of God against that sin. That's what Jeremiah was looking at. And when we stop our busy lives and we stop our rushing about, and we start to look at the misery, the evil that exists in this world, and when we experience that misery, that evil ourselves, the results of it is that hopes 
are dashed, or at least they are brutalized. A couple of weeks ago, uh, when Blake was preaching on the Sunday morning after Thanksgiving, uh, Isaiah chapter 59 was our Old Testament text. In Isaiah 59, we read, We hope for light, but behold, darkness. We hope for brightness, but we walk in doom. We hope for justice, but there's none. We hope for salvation, but it is far from us. In other words, you look out at this world and you think, well, maybe maybe there's justice there. Maybe, maybe there's something saving there. Maybe there's something good. Maybe there's something somewhere. And there's no hope when you look at those things, when you survey the world. And as a result of that, Jeremiah can express it this way, verses 17 and 18. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Hope is dead. Hope is gone, as Jeremiah sees it at that moment. Each of the passages before us today, each of the ones that I put in the bulletin today, reflect the reality of this principle from the, the New Testament ones back to the Old Testament one. John the Baptist, who knew the hope and who the person of Jesus was more than any. John the Baptist is in prison, soon to be executed, and he sends his disciples to Jesus asking, are you the one or, or, or should we expect another? Why? Why does he do that? Well, he, he does it because in the circumstances of being in prison with his life on the line, his hope and his confidence, they've been shaken. He's not sure anymore. And, and so he goes and he sends the disciples out to ask Jesus or the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They had been with Jesus. Why are they characterized as looking sad? Why are they sad? Well, they're sad because they just saw, they just saw the death, the crucifixion of Jesus. They witnessed the brutal end of the one whom they had hoped was the one who would redeem Israel. And they're sad because their hopes and their dreams have been crushed. They've been nailed to the cross. They've been buried in a cave. And now the body is gone and nobody can find him. Their eyes, in other words, saw the death of Jesus and their minds said, it's over. It's over. There's nothing to have hope about. Jeremiah had witnessed the destruction, a destruction that none of us here, none of us in this room have ever seen anything like that, let alone experienced it. And it gutted him. It gutted him body and soul. Uh, have you ever gutted a fish, a deer? I've never gutted a deer, but I've gutted plenty of fish, plenty of crab in my time. It's a brutal process. You rip out the insides so that you can prepare to cook, so that you can prepare to eat. Jeremiah was gutted. 
his hope was ripped out. And what was left there in that place where hope used to be was bitterness. Bitterness. Verse 5, he has besieged and enveloped me. And by the way, he is God in this. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. Verse 15, he has filled me with bitterness. It gutted him. It ripped him apart. And what, in, what was left inside the shell of the man was bitterness. And I don't want to look at this passage in depth just for the sake of time, but on the front of your bulletin, I put Psalm 43, verse 5 there. Uh, and that's the refrain. It happens to be the last verse of Psalm 43, but it's the refrain that goes through Psalms 42 and 43, where the psalmist finds himself cut off, separated from the people of God, tears for food, taunted by enemies. Mourning because of the oppression of the ungodly, the deceitful, the unjust. Where's your God? Where's your God? Show him to me. The circumstances don't look so good for you, so show me your God. And what happens? What happens in those circumstances? Well, the soul is cast down. The soul is thrown into turmoil. And without turning to it, consider Ecclesiastes. A relentless, methodical, experimental search for meaning and thus hope. But it keeps running into, as it looks at this world, it tries to find hope in the thing. And instead, what it finds is injustice and sinfulness and crookedness and death and ultimately vanity. And because everything is vain, that means there is no hope. There's nothing. Hope is hard. It's a struggle. It's a struggle for kings who write books like Ecclesiastes. It's a struggle for prophets like Jeremiah and like John the Baptist. It's a struggle for poets like psalm writers. It's a struggle for disciples like the ones who were on the road to, to Emmaus. And it's a struggle for us as well in this world because of the painful, real, crushing load of this world. The third and the last reason that I want to talk about today, reason that hope is a struggle, and I'll be brief, is forgetfulness. The world, the flesh, the devil, sad circumstances, terrible suffering, death, they fill the mind. They fill the sight. And they occupy the space that hope would inhabit. That's what they do. They, they get into that space where there should be hope, and instead they insert themselves into that place so that you see them and don't see hope. If hope feeds on the promises of God, then we might picture that what all of these enemies are trying to do it is to nail down, to go back to last week, to nail down the lid, to seal the coffin, to keep the box shut, the grave tight, to crate up the promises of God as best they possibly can so that you don't have access to them. And if they can't box up the promises, 
they'll wall off your mind and heart. They'll say, okay, if I can't, if I can't do anything about these promises of God, I'm going to take this person and I'm going to wall off their mind, their heart from thinking on the promises of God so that you forget. So that you forget. Listen to the way Jeremiah described verses 7 through 9. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. Now, is that true? Has God put a wall and Jeremiah is not going to escape from it, ultimately? No, it's not true, but that's what it feels like. He's walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He's made my paths crooked. In other words, Jeremiah has had his access to the promises of God blocked by the circumstances, and he sees it as God's doing. God did it. And in identifying the enemies, this is a consequence of sin here, but in identifying that and in seeing the hand of God, we end up with a ray of hope, a sliver of light that creeps into this, in the midst of the storm of this life, what we end up seeing is a rainbow because it turns out that there's one who can't be bound. There's one who can't be boxed in. There's one whom the enemies of the world and the flesh and the devil did their best to contain him and to defeat him, but they could not. And that's what all of the passages point to as well. At the end of the day, there aren't just two disciples on the road to Emmaus. There is a third. And the third one has the ability to take a sad heart and turn it into, if we read the rest of the passage, a burning heart. I'll take your sad heart and I'll turn it into a burning heart. And when the disciples of John come to Jesus, Jesus gives them this response. John wants to know if I am the one. Tell him what you've heard and what you've seen. Because what you've heard from me is the good news. It is the message. It is the word of God. And what you've seen are the works of God. And the word of God and the works of God bear witness that I am the one who is and the one who is to come. Jeremiah, in forgetfulness, says, wait, 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 wait. This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. See, what he says up above in the, in the sections right above that, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it. I remember all of this suffering, but there's something that he's forgotten, and what he's forgotten is the promises of God until he says, but this I call to mind. Now I'm not going to forget it. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Therefore, I have hope. I have hope when I recall those things to mind. Because there's one who is coming who will wear righteousness and salvation and he will embody this steadfast love of the Lord and his mercies and his faithfulnesses. And if that one is for us, if that Jesus is for us, 
who are these that are against us? Who, who are these enemies? These enemies are powerful enemies. We underestimate them at our peril. You think, well, I'm okay with these enemies. You're not okay with these enemies. These enemies will destroy. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so where, where we go with this is we, we follow the pattern of Abraham. In hope, against hope, is the way forward. In hope, against hope, is the way forward. It's the verse that's on the front of your bulletin as well, Romans 4.18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Why against hope? Because when you look at the course of this world, it didn't look like there was any hope. It just didn't look that way. Things just look bad. And if you look at things in this world, they just look bad. But we, the people of God with Abraham, move forward in that spirit, in hope, and against hope. Now, if you're listening here or online, and you don't trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible has no hope to hold out. There is no hope apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Jesus, all is not lost. All is found in him. In Jesus, hope is alive and well. We have been those who were without God having no hope in the world. But the Lord raised us from the dead with Jesus Christ through belief and faith in him. So come to him today. We thus end for the people of God where we began this service with the call to worship that said this, O Israel, hope in the Lord. That's the cry of the psalmist because he knows that Israel is tempted not to hope. And so O oh, Christ the King, O oh, brothers and sisters, hope in the Lord. Next week, we'll consider how do we strengthen our hope muscle. Lord, thank you for the promises that are found in your word. Thank you for the examples that are found in your word. And thank you for the word that is written and recorded for us that we might have hope. Pray that you would help us to be aware of the enemies of hope so that we can apply to them the promises that are yours that have been given to us and the balm of Christ to heal us. Lord, grant to us hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.